Welcome to Women's HealthCast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'll be exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN. In March, Lisa Harris visited Madison to deliver a special lecture to the UW Department of OBGYN. Dr. Harris is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan Medical School. She's also a renowned researcher on the intersection of women's health and policy. I caught up with Dr. Harris after her Grand Rounds presentation on moral agency and contested reproductive health care. Dr. Harris and I talked about her research on conscientious provision of care, as well as the landscape of reproductive justice in Michigan. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Lisa Harris from the University of Michigan for this episode of the Women's Health Cast. Dr. Harris, tell me about your background. Sure. I uh, am Canadian originally, uh, born to American parents who happened to be living in Canada at the time, or my mother anyway. And uh, I grew up there until college, and then I um, went to college and medical school at Harvard and then um, did my residency in California at University of California, San Francisco. And now I live in the Midwest in Michigan. So I've had the experience of living outside of this country and uh, of living on both coasts of this country and now in the middle. Why did you want to become a doctor? Lots of people ask me that question and I wish I had a more original or less cliche sounding answer than I wanted to help people, but it really is true. I, I had a sense that as I thought about my career, I wanted to have purpose that I could feel really good about. I um, wanted to be able to accompany people through hard times in their life and also joyous times in their life. And and then I also was fascinated by anatomy and by science, and the combination of those things led to medicine. What made you want to pursue obstetrics and gynecology? Yeah, I thought about a lot of different specialties. When I um, began in medicine, I thought I was going to be a surgeon, a plastic surgeon, actually. I was really, really interested in reconstructive surgery and hand surgery. And even as a high school student, I read a lot of doctor memoirs. I think I made, I read The Making of a Surgeon and then The Making of a Woman Surgeon, and that story is by someone who ultimately became a plastic surgeon. And I thought it was fascinating. I used to get surgery textbooks out of the library and just read about procedures. And... Uh, when I was a third year med student and we started doing our rotations, I indeed loved my surgery and plastic surgery rotations. And then I did OB and I, it was startling. I was, it was so exciting to me to be on labor and delivery and to deliver babies, catch babies. And, um, and then I also was really drawn to the messiness of it. So some literal messiness, you know, amniotic fluid everywhere and uh, uh, birth is not a neat process, but also just the social and political messiness of it. For some reason, I didn't mind it. I didn't. Some people probably run away from uh, reproductive politics, and for whatever reason, I ran towards it. That part of it intrigued me as well. Speaking of social and political messiness, um, I learned a little bit about your work and research, but just uh, tell me what your research focuses on. I've had about a 15-year research career so far, and at different times, it's focused on different things. So I have focused on miscarriage management a great deal in the past and making sure that our clinical management really follows women's preferences. I've focused on birth and how we think about risk in pregnancy and birth. 
Uh, I've spent a lot of time doing working on the history of infertility and infertility treatment, and currently most of my work has to do with abortion stigma and conscience. And so although it looks on its face like, you know, she can't make up her mind what she wants to study, what I really work on is all aspects of the reproductive life continuum and probably the best summary of a framework for what I do is um, I work on a reproductive justice continuum or a, and I try to work within a reproductive justice framework, uh, meaning that I care about all of the ways, um, I care that women are able to have, all women uh, are able to have the kinds of reproductive lives and experiences that they want uh, because that's such an important part of women and families having the lives that they want. Okay, you just mentioned reproductive justice. Tell me more about what that is. So I, everything I tell you about reproductive justice are, are, is going to be things that I've learned from women of color advocates and activists who generated the, not just the term reproductive justice, but that as a framework and as a movement. Um, so everything. So let me just say I'm saying everything with a great amount of humility and uh, respect for the people that have taught me what this means. But to make it vivid, so the term reproductive justice came about in the 1990s when women of color advocates said, well, hold on a second. Uh, right now it seems like when we talk about reproductive rights, we're just talking about abortion. And maybe, you know, if you are a white middle class or affluent woman in the 1960s and 70s in the United States, maybe if you're that woman, the only reproductive right that you feel like you don't have or you may lose access to is abortion. But if you're a different woman, if you are a woman of color, if you're an immigrant woman, if you're a woman marginalized by, uh, if you're a sexual minority woman, if you are marginalized in any way, then there are a lot of reproductive rights you don't have right now. You may be sterilized coercively or against your will or without your knowledge. You may have your children uh, taken away from you because of judgments about your parenting. You may be arrested when you're pregnant because, of, because you became pregnant in the setting of addiction. So that those are experiences that disproportionately happen to women of color. And um, so it took, it's, it seems obvious now that it would be women of color movements that would say, Reproductive rights as equivalent to abortion rights, that's way too narrow. We need a much roomier idea and framework and concept if we are really going to meet the needs of all women. And that is how the term reproductive justice came about to describe that roomier framework and that women, um, that when you take a lens and you account for um, race and ethnicity and language and social class and immigration status, when you account for all of those things and the way they intersect to produce both identity and experience, then you um, see all of the broad range of rights that people ought to have. You said this movement is really driven by women of color, and I've been kind of curious, how can white people productively engage in reproductive justice work? So I think that's a really good question, and it's a question that um, a lot of my students ask me as, as well. I teach undergrads at the University of Michigan, and there is a huge um, commitment to reproductive justice values and work among all people, people of color and white people, but I think that many white people wonder, is there a, a place in reproductive justice for them? How can they contribute? And um, 
It's an excellent question. And I think that probably listening is the number one um, thing. Uh, I, it's an, a movement designed to be inclusive. And um, that means there is a place for all people. But my own sense is that the privilege that white people and affluent or middle class people have had has really blinded them to the needs of many communities, especially communities of color. And until everybody can kind of wrap their arms around what the needs of everybody might be, the main job is to listen. Uh, and the main job is to sometimes step back and let other people lead. At the same time, I, I do think that there is a, a huge role for white people to call out white privilege. Uh, and that's not a burden that people of color should always have to manage. Um, and I guess I'm really inspired by Loretta Ross, who many people think of as the mother of kind of reproductive justice movements and certainly as a founder of Sister Song. Um, that That is uh, a, an identity that she, I don't know what she would say herself, but the, that is some a way that I think about her. And she has really inspired me because she really, uh, the last time I heard her speak, describe sort of an ethic of calling in rather than calling out. So there can be a tendency for people who overall share a vision of reproductive justice to call each other out when their you know, privilege is showing or when they're not listening well or when they're stepping up when they really should be stepping back or moving up when they really should be moving back. And she really inspired me by saying, let's call each other in. Let's recognize that not everybody, that Lots of people share values, reproductive justice values, and want to do this work. And they may not all know how to do it, and they may stumble, and they may um, uh, need help to realize those moments when they need to have a voice and when they need to be more silent. And But let's just call each other in. Let's welcome each other uh, rather than pointing out of all of the times when we're stumbling. What does reproductive justice look like in Michigan right now? Um, so I can speak best to what that work looks like within an academic community, um, which maybe is not the right answer. So I think to really know what reproductive justice work looks like in Michigan, you need to talk to the people who are leading reproductive justice groups on the ground in communities across the state. And that is something that, that we are engaged in. I think that it's a legitimate question, like what is the role of a big academic institution in the reproductive justice movement? Like what, you know, what is the ivory tower role? Can, um, how do we become engaged in this work without um, stepping on? And, and I think there's a risk of not acknowledging all the work that people are already doing on the ground. So I think from the point of view of an academic institution, the work needs to be about supporting community-based organizations. The work needs to be about um, teaching students what this framework might mean. It means involving reproductive justice leaders and advocates and experts in teaching our students. And we do have some curriculum development efforts underway. Um, it means teaching, I think, nonviolent communication so that we can engage across ideological divides. Um, and there are many, many prod research projects going on at University of Michigan that would, including some of my own, that would fall sort of broadly under a reproductive justice category. Um, 
but I still think the question of what the role of academic institutions is in this movement is an open one. You mentioned Sister Song as an organization that's kind of on the leading edge of reproductive justice. Are there other organizations engaged in this work that people could look up to learn a little bit more or to learn about local movements? Um, there are many other organizations. Um, there's the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health. There's Forward Together, which uh, used to be Asian Communities for Reproductive Justice. So there, there I think, you know, just starting a Google search that way will be helpful. Um, but yes, there are many national groups and local groups engaged in this work. I wanted to ask, as a person who's dedicated to providing comprehensive women's health care, in your opinion, what is the number one thing someone can do if they want to champion access to the full range of women's health care? You know, there are, there are such an infinite number of <laughs> possibilities for how I would answer that. I think... Um, I think it's really important, and I have a lot of students come into my office to, to ask me this, and my main answer is not actually one that's specific to reproductive health. It's just to um, engage with your lived experience, engage with what means something to you uh, and what you're passionate about, and to find a path through that. So it may not be a path that anyone's even ever identified before, but I think it is important to work from your own experience to figure out what, um, what issues are important to you. Uh, it's, I think, um, listening and talking to people, um, doing some of that searching for organizations that they might connect with is important. Um, conversations, I think, where things are so polarized right now in, in this country that uh, I think it's hard for people to have conversations about a whole ra wide range of issues in reproductive health. So I, I guess an openness to talking about it in nuanced and complex ways and, and listening. In what arena do you think there's like the greatest need for women's health advocates? I don't know is the, the short answer. I, I think, you know, my career has taken lots of different turns. And um, if I was going to pick one area, I would say it would be the Re, the integration of abortion care into general practice in mainstream medicine. That, I think, is something that would uh, have an enormous impact uh, on, on women. If women could get abortion care where they get all the rest of their care, uh, that is something I would like to see. And as I, in the course of my research, as I talk to people around the country who, aren't, who don't specifically identify as pro-choice or anti-choice or pro-life advocates, that's something that people... Um, welcome and expect that healthcare provider, you could get all your healthcare needs met in one setting. So that is a change that I would like to see. I really enjoyed your lecture this morning on moral agency and provision of contested reproductive healthcare. Can you uh, kind of summarize the key themes from your presentation? Oh, well, I talked a lot about um, conscience in healthcare, and I talked about the stigmatization of abortion and, and I talked a lot about how stigma and conscience intersect and complicate each idea. You discussed conscientious objection with different aspects of care, especially related to reproductive care and medical aid in dying. But you also talked about this less familiar idea of the conscientious provision of care. So I think most people are familiar with the idea of conscience protections for people whose um, conscience based often in religious beliefs or moral values, but sometimes in other non-religious beliefs, 
tell them that they can't do something. So that's a very familiar idea, and there's just a sea of uh, bioethical and legal literature on conscientious objection. And the question for me it, a few years ago was, well, wait, doesn't conscience sometimes also tell you to do things, even contested care? So even things like abortion or in vitro fertilization or contraception or whatever it might be, for some people, their moral life tells them those are things they need to do and they should do, that they're just and they're right and they're important. And so I just asked a question about, you know, can we recognize conscientious provision of contested care? And uh, so I, I wrote a piece about that that people found interesting. And I used, in this case, I asked that question around the issue of abortion. Um, and I used evidence from physicians' memoirs and some sociological work to show that, indeed, conscience motivates provision of care uh, just as it motivates objection to care, and that uh, a moral harm to one's self can come not just from doing something that your conscience says not to do, but from not doing something that your conscience says you ought to. And I think it's important to recognize that even though we're in a very polarized time in our country and people, you know, argue from opposite sides of ideological spectrums that everybody has a conscience and people's moral matrices and moral universes may be different, but conscience can both compel people to not do something and to do the very same thing. Stigma sometimes gets in the way of seeing that. To just take the case of abortion specifically, abortion is so stigmatized. So women who have an abortion are stigmatized. Caregivers who provide that care are stigmatized. And therefore, it can be really jarring and counterintuitive to say, oh, but abortion providers are doing that work out of a moral place, out of conscience. So stigma, I think, gets in the way of seeing conscientious provision. And stigma also may confound conscientious objection because there are a lot of reasons that people don't provide abortion or other contested care. Some of those reasons are certainly conscience that from a religious or moral values tell you that it's wrong to do that. But sometimes not providing care isn't a manifestation of um, conscience. It's uh, not wanting to be stigmatized or not wanting to be harassed or threatened uh, or not wanting to um, upset people in your family or other people who work in your office or not wanting um, you know, to, to ruin a Thanksgiving dinner, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, and sometimes it's just logistically complicated due to institutional stigma to provide care that you might want to prevail that otherwise you might. So although I do believe that conscience motivates both objections and provision, stigma gets in the way of, of really understanding what's going on uh, in the case of objection. What kind of training does an OBGYN need to be able to provide abortions? Does it uh, require an additional family planning fellowship or more subspecialty training? Uh, not necessarily, okay. no. I think the family planning fellowship uh, does provide training after OBGYN residency in particularly complex family planning care. So those are cases, for example, of when the placenta is growing into the wall of the uterus, when some, typically if someone's had several cesarean sections. Those are the kind of cases where um, subspecialty training in family planning is really um, helpful and needed to manage those cases, or abortion care in medically, very medically complicated patients, or abortion care in um, the later second trimester. Those are kinds of specialty family planning care, but the majority of abortions happen uh, in the first trimester of pregnancy, 
and uh, in healthy women and uh, being able to safely end a pregnancy or um, do a suction procedure or dilation cure tosh procedure, those are basic OBGYN skills, and uh, they can be done by anyone who's trained, which can include OBGYNs, it can include family medicine physicians, it can include emergency physicians and adolescent medicine physicians, anyone who in the course of their training has learned how to safely empty a uterus uh, can can do that work. And since um, miscarriage treatment very often involves that very same care, uh, it's, I would say that's not uh, specialty care, and it's really important that we recognize that most abortion care can be provided in the context of a general practice setting in an outpatient setting. Are you aware of any trends in doctors um, choosing or choosing not to train in family planning? So I know um, based on ACGME guidelines, uh, OBGYN residents can opt out of that rotation based on moral objections. And I'm just wondering if there's a notable trend in more people opting out of abortion training or if it's remaining fairly consistent. You know, I don't know the national data on that. I can speak from my own experience in which um, when we began to uh, more formally offer abortion training at my institution, uh, few people participated. And as our programs became more established, more people did participate. Um, I think part of it maybe if you build it, they will come kind of phenomenon. So if an institution doesn't offer that training, it's probably going to attract people who don't want that training. And if an uh, institution does offer the training, it will it may attract people who do want that training. Um, I can't speak on a national level, but I can say that it's been important even for residents who opt out. And I fully think that people who who for um, real reasons of conscience or religion or values don't want to participate. They shouldn't. Um, in our institution, they nevertheless um, observe and um, participate in not in procedures themselves, but in just um, seeing what counseling and education looks like, what, what the ultrasound looks like. And it's really uh, been an important part of their experience. Is there anything else you think people should know about your work, about your research focus, or uh, the current landscape of women's health? I think I've covered the, the main things that I, that I would like to say, uh, so thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.